Father, we again thank you for an absolutely beautiful day that you have created for us to rejoice and be glad in it. And we give this evening to you. And I I ask you, Father, in the life group that you would be ministering to people and that you would bless our brother Tim as he leads that study here tonight, Lord God, as we go through some, some actually very controversial subjects. I ask for wisdom. I ask, Father, for tact. I ask, Father, for... Um, firm conviction, and I, I ask, Father, for an understanding above everything of your word. Um, Father, we want to know what beats in your heart, because whether, if there's something that bristles in us against your truth, then there's something wrong in us, not in you. And so I just ask you, Lord, give us humble hearts to learn, give us humble hearts to be able to receive and walk in, and Father, I pray that as we walk in your truth, we're going to see your beautiful plan and reasons why unfold for us. So that's what we pray for tonight. Your truth to reign supreme in our hearts as we walk it out. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read some, uh, I don't know what you call it, maybe oxymorons or some... uh, Bits of wisdom. Um, Here's one. I doubt, therefore, I might be. (laughs) Yeah, think about that one. Procrastination is the art of keeping up with yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Before they invented drawing boards, what did they go back to? (laughs) Think about that one. If you try to fail and succeed, which have you done? Hmm. The tongue weighs practically nothing, but so few people can hold it. If it weren't for electricity, we'd be watching television by candlelight. (laughs) Misery doesn't have misery doesn't love company. Misery doesn't love anything. And lastly, men are from Earth. Women are from Earth, so let's deal with it. Okay? Now, I wanted to end on that because tonight's lesson has to deal with a woman's role or women's role in the church. This is very controversial, to say the least, in our day. Uh, Truth be told, over the centuries, women have been looked down upon. They've been taken advantage of, for the most part, treated as second-class citizens. And as we're moving into an era in which you know, women can vote, um, there, there's a desire for women to be treated well and be, be viewed with equal value as men. And I think there's been a tremendous amount of confusion over this one word, equality. Because on the one hand, I am all for equality. But on the other hand, I have to ask the question, equality with regard to what? All right? And there are many, what they call biblical feminists, that would say across the board, equality in every single area. And that's what we want to look at tonight. As we look at this question of woman's role in the church, our goal is not to, uh, to just climb aboard with whatever fad or with whatever um, relative ethics that are being milled through the market, 
Uh, and it's not to respond or overreact to things like radical feminism. We need to be grounded in God. What does your word say? Because the truth is, Jesus truly valued women. Uh, Jesus did not take on the reg- the typical mindset that his culture did, in which rabbis would say things like, God, thank you that I was not born a woman. And in order, it, it even says in one of the Gnostic Gospels that the way for a woman to get, to get into the kingdom of heaven is for her to become a man. I mean, those radical outlandish things, yeah. So we have to, we have to step back and we have to say we don't want to just give a knee-jerk reaction to some of these things in our culture, but we don't want to just embrace what we're being told is this is good, this is good. We want to embrace what God says is good. So we're going to need wisdom as, as we go through this. Genesis one twenty seven says that God created them uh, male and female in his image, And let me just read it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is obviously this sense of equality in their creation for him to have said this. We also need to realize that when Eve was created, she was not created from Adam's head. And he was not created from Adam's foot, but he was cre- she was created from Adam's side, Adam's rib. And so we have to ask then, what is the significance of this? And as we turn to Galatians chapter, th- well, before we do that, as we move in then into chapter 3 of Genesis, what we find is the curse being given to the woman is that she will have pain in her childbirth, childbirthing, and that... She will desire her husband and he will rule over her. That is a curse, that is not a blessing. People who take this desire to mean sexual desire, seeing this word is used only two other times in the Old Testament, that is used by Solomon 500 years, uh, or more than 500 years later, uh, from Moses. And is that really what he was getting? Or is he using how it's used in the very next chapter, that sin desires to have you or desires you, Cain, but you must master it. Both of those words, you will desire your husband and he shall rule or master, rule over or master you. So both of those words are used in the very next chapter. And I'm more inclined to go with how Moses uses these words rather than Solomon. So if that's the case, this is not a blessing. This is a curse. She will desire to control Adam but Adam, in response, will rule her with the iron fist. And this is what's going to naturally, well, according to our flesh naturally, bring division in the home that in Christ, in redemption, needs to be healed. And so for this reason, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. That is in contradistinction to the curse in Genesis 3.15. So... I want us to look at, at um, I did tell you to, to turn to 1 Timothy 2, so you can stay there, but if you want to follow me in Galatians 3.28, you're more than welcome to do that. 
just in case you know I'm not pulling rabbits out of it, or I'm not committing heresy by <laughs> misquoting this, it does say there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now there is a movement that has been around for a couple of decades called biblical feminism. And it's basically taken radical feminism from the world and tried to modify it and substantiate it with scripture. So there are radical feminists, excuse me, there are biblical feminists, and I'm, I'm putting that in quotes because I don't believe that it's biblical and I don't believe that it truly represents women, as the Bible reveals. But it's called biblical feminism, and it's, they would look at this and say, see, that before Christ, there's no such thing as a male and a female. We need to erase, except for the biological distinctives, we need to erase these roles that we generally give to men and roles that we generally give to women. We need to get rid of these, uh, this idea of masculinity and femininity. We need to try and treat men and women absolutely equal. Um, my question is, what do you mean by treat? Because this would basically say that, we are, that God is wanting to do away with male and female distinctives, except for the biological ones. And my question then is, well, then we need to do that with Jew and Gentile. Are you willing to do that? So, but the Bible very clearly talks about Jews and Gentiles as distinct. There's cultural differences. The, quest, the, the focus here in Galatians 3 is not whether we erase the differences. They are a given. They're biological. They are instilled from creation on. There are roles that I see in Scripture that flow from this distinction, what Paul is getting at is that in Christ, we are all on level ground before the cross. There is no favoritism with God. He does not favor the Jew above the Gentile. He doesn't favor the man above the woman. He sees them, therefore, having equal value. They are both created in the image of God. They are both uh, have salvation available to them through Christ. Uh, God does not make the way for man easier than the way for woman or vice versa to be saved. So in Christ Jesus, in Christ, we, we all have the same value. And in Christ, there is no favoritism one over the other. Slave or free. You know what? We need to be careful because if there if is slave and there are free, then we have to be careful that our goal is not to just get rid of all of that because that is not what Paul said. Paul actually encouraged Onesimus to go back to Philemon. Okay? So I'm going to suggest to you that this passage focuses on value and not the distinctness, the roles and such. Okay? If we were to look at 1 Corinthians 11, what we would find is that man is the head of the woman. Greek word kephale, uh, some people have really tried to put an odd cultural spin on this word, and we need to realize that kephale, within that term, it denotes authority. You cannot get around this, that there is authority, there's an authority structure in the home. Just as, and we went over this, just as there's an authority structure in the Godhead, the Father has the plan, and he sent the Son. The Son obeys the Father. He suffered on the cross, secured salvation, and then he sent the Holy Spirit, who now 
brings salvation to bear practically in the lives of men and women's hearts. So there's an authority structure in the Godhead. There's an authority structure in the home. The question now we want to bring, is there this similar authority structure in the church? Let me just suggest to you that you will regularly find connection, illustration, analogy, parallels between home, family, husband-wife relationships, and the church. Okay? Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. All right? Uh, there, there's many of them that we could go through. So it would certainly seem odd that if the church is to mirror the family and the family mirror the church, which really is the, God created this, the spiritual things before he created the physical things. The family is given to us to reflect the spiritual things, okay? Because the spiritual things is what will last forever and ever. The family will not. So why would God create the family to mirror the spiritual things except when it comes to the church? Does that not seem odd? And yet this is what is suggested to us today. So I want us to kind of cut through this and, and see what is it that Scripture actually speaks of because we want to be careful with this word egalitarian. Egalitarian means that the husband has the same amount of authority as the woman. I'm not sure if amount is what we should really be talking about, but there is an authority structure. So this concept of egalitarian, which is held by Christians in our day, seeks to erase that. The husband and the woman have equal authority in the home, I think, though, to be, to be fair to Jesus' words, he said you cannot serve two masters. He would be speaking to children, you cannot serve two masters. Either you'll love the one and hate the other, or despise the one and cling to the other. So, one has to be the head. The other it has authority as well, but there is a structure, just as in the Godhead. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and let's begin this journey uh, that, honestly, we don't have a whole lot of time to dig in because we're actually wanting to look at two topics tonight. And they are both controversial. Woohoo! All right. It says here in verse uh, 1 Timothy 2:11, it says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, we can talk about verse 15. I truly think that that probably deals with another issue. And so I would like to focus on these first three, 11, 12, 13, and four, first four verses. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. Um, there is a... This concept of cultural change that is today introduced into this passage that would suggest that Paul's intention was to address a cultural issue and not to address a principle. The cultural issue was that women had a certain place in society and that at the time that they should cater to that 
hierarchy, that circumstance in their society. Even as Paul catered to Onesimus, going back to Philemon, uh, though he did not endorse slavery, and understand slavery was very different back then than the slavery our country has experienced, um, though there are obviously are some similarities, Paul's concern here is what's going on in Ephesus. That because of the cultural norms that cultures outgrow, cultures change, Paul is suggesting that because of these cultural norms, don't rock the boat, women be silent in the churches, don't speak in the churches, don't teach in the churches, don't exercise authority in the churches, and just find your place, but understand that that's cultural. Uh, a problem that we're going to find right off the bat is Priscilla and Aquila. Those who would hold that, Pr Priscilla, and, that Priscilla was a pastor, and that women pastors today model themselves after her, but yet hold to what I just said, will find themselves in a dilemma. Because Priscilla and Aquila lived in Ephesus for many, many years. They, that was one of their home bases, Rome and Ephesus. And if Paul then is suggesting to Timothy that women should learn in silence and never speak and should not teach because that was the cultural accepted norm of the day, therefore abide by it, then why is Priscilla praised for she was with her husband teaching Apollos? Why would she even consider being a pastor if Paul is telling the people in Ephesus and Timothy is stationed in Ephesus at this, we read that in chapter 1, then why didn't Priscilla obey that? She would have been out of order. I think this is a fair question to raise. So I think that the answer is that this is not a cultural issue that Paul is dealing with. We're, we're going to need to delve into that some more. I think that we are dealing with a principle here. And if we're dealing with a principle, then we need to ask a very fair question. Then what does Paul mean by women being silent in the church? Does it mean that when a woman suddenly opens, you know, goes into the church building or gathering of other Christians that the discussion she had with her husband or her children should cease, that she doesn't say anything. Maybe she puts a bit of duct tape across her mouth. Does it mean that she is not the one to discipline the children and speak to them, but since a woman is to remain silent in the church, that she has her husband shush the children, discipline them, etc.? Does it mean that a woman should not pray in the church? Does it mean that a woman should not prophesy in the church? If this is the case, then we find a serious contradiction in the scriptures. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul encourages the women to pray in the church with their head covered. I'm not going to get into that tonight. And encourages them to prophesy. If Paul is encouraging them to prophesy, would he also not encourage them to express a word of wisdom or express a word of knowledge or give a tongue or perhaps an interpretation? Word of knowledge, uh, we touched on this ever so briefly a few weeks ago, but word of knowledge is not just sitting there and suddenly a word comes from you that, that, the, that God dropped into your mind that you share like the word adultery, and you just blurt it out. God just gave me the word adultery. 
You know, I'm sorry, but how does that help by saying adultery in the midst of a group? Well, maybe it's because someone's caught up in adultery and they just needed to know. God knows that you're in adultery. Okay, well, I think God's going to probably handle that a little differently. Um, I, I, I don't see that as what Scripture calls the word of knowledge. Um, but rather, such as in a Bible study, uh, someone is sharing and God gives them insight, male or female, they share that insight from the word in the context of a Bible study. Um we need to realize that women have been encouraged and allowed access to all of the spiritual gifts. When it comes to teaching, now Paul gives some directives here. And for us to understand this idea of silence in the church and the place of teaching, or in this case, not teaching or having authority over men, I'm going to encourage us, let's go to 1 Corinthians 14. Paul deals with very similar situation, but he, he elaborates on it just a little bit. And I'm all in favor of, hey, let's dig into the word and let's elaborate on it as much as we can. Let's get God's thoughts on it and not just man. So turn with me then to 1 Corinthians 14. And we're going to be uh, reading verses 33, 34, and 35. As... In all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. That's what 1 Timothy 2 mentions. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. Now, pause. Does the law say they should not speak? No. Does the law say they should be in submission? Yes. So, if Paul is bringing these ideas of speaking and submission together and saying the law substantiates this, we're going to need to understand what does he mean by not speaking. Because he certainly doesn't mean they can't say anything. He must be talking about a specific area of speaking in the church. And this is what we're going to need to investigate. Because the law does say that women should be in submission. In verse 35, it says, If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is a disgrace for a woman to speak in the church. Again, if they prayed and prophesied, he cannot mean they're not supposed to say anything. So what's going on here that they would be speaking? And since this is in the context of order, look at the very end, look at 32 and beginning of 33. Beginning of 33 says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. This whole chapter is seeking to bring the spiritual gifts in alignment with God's will so that there is order in the church when they're exercised. So this is Paul's concern. Order. Don't just speak in tongues with no interpretation. Okay? Don't just take your prayer language and blurt it out loud. If you have a tongue and the Lord is leading you, you share it, but it's to be interpreted. And so, this is in the context of order, and now we find in verse 35, apparently there is some disorder. Why would Paul suggest to a woman, if you have a question, ask your husband at home? In many of the synagogues, the men and women sat separately. That was tradition. Paul didn't rock the boat there and say, hey, don't do that. I would venture to say that in many churches that wasn't the case. But in, in many of the synagogues it was. And if the woman did not have a lot of learning. And, and let me just pause right here. 
Women in the New Testament were educated. Let me say that again. Women in the New Testament were educated. At age 12, most boys and, and girls, the girls would help out in the home, the boys would help out more on the farm. At age 12, 13, if uh, a rabbi felt that you were called to uh, be a, a teacher of the law, he would take you under his wing and he would disciple you. And that's how they would get more education. But to suggest that women were not educated is, is just untrue. That's a common uh, fallacy that's spread around in our culture today. The women of the in the New Testament were not educated. That is not true. Were they as educated as the men? No, they weren't. Generally speaking, no, they weren't. The women were taught to read, write, etc. But as far as accessibility to studying the scriptures, no. Did they learn the scriptures? Yes. They are probably therefore going to have more questions. The problem then is that if they ask the questions out loud, it would be disruptive. And so Paul clearly is stating here, if you have questions, I understand this, but you need to ask your <coughs> husbands at home, and he puts a period there. It's fair to suggest then that he's saying this because they're, they are asking the questions. It is bringing disruption, disorder, and so Paul is saying you need to be silent. Okay? When there is teaching in the church, you need to be silent. So there's not disorder. And that is what he would be addressing. If we understand this, now we begin to understand, sure, so why of course he would allow them to pray. Of course he would allow them to prophesy and move in other spiritual gifts. When it comes to a teaching role, or when it comes to the teaching time, silence. Paul then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2 goes one step further than that. He, he not only addresses the silence, but now he goes one step further and he addresses teaching and, and having authority. And does he mean you're not allowed to teach a man and you're not allowed to have authority over man as if they're separate subjects? I'm going to suggest to you that he is bringing them together, teaching and having authority in the church. Now some would say um, that this then he is referring only to women being pastors, elders, and overseers. <coughs> I understand their view, the very next chapter, what qualification, uh, what office does he, does he lay out qualifications for? Chapter 3. Being an overseer, which is an elder or a pastor. And so, we, okay, that fits the context. Um, but what if, such as in Powerline, there is some teaching responsibilities given to deacons? I think that this would need to apply as well. Uh, we do that in Powerline. We don't have women life group leaders who lead the, the Bible teaching and discussion. But women certainly participate. Okay? Um, so... If women were not allowed to teach, and if he's dealing with these as two separate subjects rather than teaching and having authority together, we would need to... Um, one second here, let me... Okay, I'm starting to jump ahead of myself here, and I don't want really to do that. Here we go. Um, then Priscilla was out of line... 
for working with her husband and helping teach Apollos and, and explain the way of the Lord more fully. We read about that in Acts chapter 18. To go another step and say she was a pastor, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. I'm not sure we can, we can uh, validate that, substantiate it with Scripture. Because Priscilla's name precedes Aquila's many times, though not always in the New Testament, does not mean even that Aquila was a pastor, though he probably was, because they met in their, in their home in Rome. We read about that in, Rome, in Romans chapter 16. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Priscilla was a pastor. Um, and if she is, then we have to deal with this. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, because a pastor certainly would. I'm going to come back to that. That would also mean, if, if she just could not ever teach a man, that she would never be able to sit down in a discussion in which the Bible is the topic, or an issue in the Bible is the topic, and express her understanding of the word. Because that would technically be teaching. And that would not be right if there was a man present. How about authority? Does that mean she can't have any authority in the church? May I suggest to you, if women are not allowed to have any authority in the church, and that means they, and I'm just being pragmatic here, but that means that they would never be able to lead an event in the church. Any event has to have a leader, generally speaking, and she would never be able to lead that event. Uh, A man would always have to lead an event or coordinate an event. So if we're going to treat these separately, we have to get over these obstacles and... I'm going to suggest to you that he is bringing them together, teaching, having authority together. It doesn't necessarily have to be just with regard to a pastor, though that's generally where you find teaching and having authority, because deacons, their goal is to assist the elders. In the Old Testament, you had priests and Levites. In the New Testament, you have elders and deacons, or overseers and deacons, or pastors and deacons, okay? There, the definite, how the, the, the role of a deacon is never fully fleshed out for us in the New Testament. It does mean servant. And so the best we can say is that the deacon assists the elder. Um, I'm going to suggest to you that 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and my, my purpose is not to get into it tonight, that there is an allowance for deacon assist. And that that word for women would refer to... Uh, Women, not just wives, as the NIV says in verse chapter 3, verse 11, wives. The word gunaikos can also be translated women, not just wives. So if, it's, if he is talking about wives there of the deacons, why doesn't he talk about the wives of the elders, which I think would be even more important. He doesn't. So I'm going to suggest to you that in verse 11 he is referring to deaconesses. Phoebe in Romans 16.1 would be not just a servant, because the, the word diakonos is used there, or diakone for feminine, but she is a deaconess, okay? But however you slice and dice and distribute responsibilities, wherever there's responsibility, there's going to be authority, okay? Please, let's understand that. But should she have that authority and teaching position over a man? And I'm seeing here, according to Paul, she should not. Uh, question? Comment? Um, deaconesses. Do you mean 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy? Uh, what did verse, I say? 11? Uh, 1 Timothy 3.11. Yes, did I say Corinthians? Sorry about that. Thank you for clarifying. Especially those who are listening online here. 
First uh, Timothy three eleven. So that's why when you turn to Corinthians, you're thinking, "What man? Pastors had a wild dream last night. Where's he going with this?" So we now need to really get into this teaching and have it in authority because it is very common in our day. As we go into the next verse, this next word for is what they say that it it is used for illustration purposes. So the next two um, directives, or I'll just say the next two scripture passage, scripture references, there we go, are illustrations or examples of how in this Ephesian culture, women should not teach or have authority over a man. But as cultures evolve, get better, move, change, whatever, women such as today can teach and have authority over a man. They can become pastors. Why? Because whatever Paul says in verse 14, it's only for illustration purposes. That's what the word for means. And I'm gonna, I, I understand that it can introduce an illustration, but it, I would suggest it absolutely does not here. And the reason why is because Adam being formed first is not an illustration. If it is, it's a really weak illustration. He is giving it to show us the foundation of why Adam was the one who was to lead. Why Adam was called to be the head. Why Adam, being under the authority of his father and mother, had to leave that authority to be able to lead his home. That's the end of chapter 2 of Genesis. Man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And so, Adam being formed first is a biblical principle, not a biblical illustration. That woman, and therefore this touches on the authority aspect, the woman being deceived first, we have to say, well, if this is a biblical principle, is God just being unfair here? He is, in giving a principle, there is a reason why. We may guess at it, he doesn't tell us, but this is, this is going beyond just an illustration. Well, you know, Eve was the one deceived and so sinned, and that's kind of an illustration for why I'm... Do you, do, you, do you feel the gears grinding at least a little bit for us to suggest that because Adam was formed first and Eve was the one deceived in the garden first and became a sinner before man, before Adam, that to just suggest that those are illustrations, there's a weakness here because he goes all the way back to creation. He could have just thrown out any illustrations, but he threw out timeless Principles rooted not just in man's history, but in the very nature of man. You can see it in how the woman was cursed and how the man was cursed. Okay? So, for Paul to say, I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, and then to give two principles that are rooted in creation and in the very next chapter, chapter 3, man's fall, and in the nature of, of things, he is, he is therefore telling us, not suggesting, not giving a cultural directive, 
but rather a cross-cultural, cross-generational, timeless directive. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over her. <coughs> At this point, yes, questions? I'm sorry. Um, just going back for one second to verse 12. So are you saying that where it's translated, <coughs> I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, that you think it would be better translated from the Greek for a woman to teach and <coughs> to have authority over a man, that the or should be advanced? Um, to be seen together, because that's generally how we would use the word and, yes. And, yeah. So that the two of, the, the two of those teaching and the, the term having authority should be seen together and not separately. So that he's not saying there should never be a time in which a woman is found teaching a man or, or teaching in the, with a man present and there should never be a time in which a woman is exercising some semblance of authority if a man is present but rather as she is teaching in a role or a position have ex- and thereby exercising authority so I'm seeing them together so is there a reason why it was translated or the word or I don't think it, <coughs> I don't think we're forced to say that It is, I don't think we're forced to say that he is separating them in that way. Um, if, again, if we do, then we, we, we have some problems just very practically with a woman. If she is going to share a biblical insight from scripture, then there is some semblance of teaching that's going on there. She doesn't, she's not leading the group. But if she expresses her opinion about the word, is that not some semblance of teaching? And I would suggest, yeah, there it is. But it's being weighed. There's a difference between me as a teacher teaching you something, because this is, there is also that place of authority, whoever stands up in front of the group addressing the group in that position, as opposed to someone sitting down and sharing ideas. Okay? And so... Yes, I do see them together. Um, I am trying to remember. Um, I, I'm just confused by the word, and it's probably just in Englishism, because in English, or is always like a separation, like either or, like that's how we use it. So I was just trying to understand like what the Greek that was and why it, it got translated mm-hmm. in that way. Um, I will certainly look into that. Um, because I do know that there are a lot of very well-respected men who, when they teach through this passage, they see them together and not just separate. Like the, there should never be a time in which a woman is, is found teaching. Um, and, and if we do separate them rather than bringing them together, I think we do run into some diff- just practical difficulties. And so uh, let me look into that. Because I do remember reading something years ago as far as why, it, within the Greek construction here, it's important to see them joined together rather than two separate subjects entirely. Comment, question? I have, I have a couple of verses here that use that word, and it's translated and, or, and, nor. For these break in, and, steal. The birds don't grow, or reap, or store. And a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. 
verses? Okay. And that's all the same word. The verse that she's referring to is, is verse 13, where it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. 13. Okay. 13. And it's not the Greek word chi, which is translated and. It's. it's Ude? Ude. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Should a woman be a pastor? I realize that in some of the churches, the title pastor is given, but what she actually does is not pastoring, though it might be pastoring children or it might be pastoring teens. And when you get to teens, you know, when do they become men? How do we understand them? Are they, are they children? Are they men? Um, that might be a little bit difficult to hash out. Um, the question, should they be pastors? We, we do need to answer the question in chapter 3, why is it that the directive is given... Um, that there are to be a husband of but one wife. Some would say, well, that's cultural because there were no women. Well, Jesus himself was no stranger to breaking cultural norms because his goal was not to conform to the cultural norm. His goal was to speak the truth. Jesus healed on the Sabbath, definitely going against cultural norms. Jesus spoke to a Samaritan woman. She was Samaritan and she was a woman. That would be taboo, but not according to the scriptures, but according to cultural norms. Uh, Jesus cleansed the temple. Wow, did he ruffle feathers with that one? Um, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He ate with unwashed hands. You see, Jesus had no problem, and I'm going to suggest to you, therefore, Paul being inspired by the Holy Spirit, would have no problem in seeking to cut across these cultural norms if they're contrary to the word. So for Paul to, to say that they must be the husband of but one wife, he does not suggest or the wife of one husband. Okay? It then goes on later and it says um, that he must manage his own, and that's in the masculine, his own family. Well, not her own, but his own family well. So I, I, I'm a little gun-shy to be able to say that Paul is somehow trying to cater to the cultural norm here. And since there are no women, he doesn't expect there to be, because that is, this, this, this is a directive. They, they must be. Husband of but one wife. Okay, if they're if they're husband, if they're married, I, I I don't I don't think I think we need to be careful and suggest that they have to be married because Paul wasn't. But if they're married, they're to be husbands of but one wife. Now, I'm not going to get into what it means to be the husband of but one wife, though that's very relevant in our day. Uh, that would take me outside of my bounds of what I want to cover tonight. Um, <clears throat> I think though that it is fair. To ask the question, what about successful women pastors in our day? 
Joyce Meyer, very large church. I, I've listened to her speak before. I think she has a lot of good things to say. I'm not aboard with all of her theology by any means. Some would say, so if we're going to say that women shouldn't be pastors, then Joyce Meyer or women like her who are pastors are sinning and they've missed the call of God on their life and therefore, if they're, in, if, if, if they're sinning, then how is it that God has blessed them with so much fruit? Well, let me ask you this. An evangelist, who, in his situation, is lacking in character, should not be holding the office of an evangelist, but he's embraced as such. But there's a lot of people being saved in this ministry. His family is totally out of order. What should he do? Some would say, but look at all the fruit in his ministry and justify him continuing to be an evangelist. Or a pastor who's fallen in adultery. And into it not just one case, but many years of a pattern. Is it right for us to say you need to step down? But look at all the fruit in his ministry. And I've seen, we have all known in our town, one in which this happened and the church folded. And then, was it wrong to have him step down? Absolutely not. Because we must live according to the scriptures, not according to what we think is justifiable. And so I would suggest, and, and I don't know Joyce Meyer, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I've ever even heard her testimony. I am not in one second going to doubt her gifting. I'm just doubting her role. Who is to say that God had not truly called her into ministry as a missionary or into ministry in, in serving in other capacities rather than center stage? The concern I have is... And, and again, I don't know Joyce Meyer's character. I don't know her, um, her relationship with her husband. I don't know anything about her church. But could it not be possible that by allowing her to take that platform, it would have effects in homes? Because what we have done is we have said the husband is to be the head in the home, but in the church it's okay for it to be flip-flopped. I struggle with that. I have a problem with that. And so... On the other hand, um, I want to be careful. I know that some churches, and I mentioned this before, they, they have women pastors, but are they really pastoring? And I'd have to say, I mean, they're caring. They're taking care of administrative responsibilities. Um, they're doing much as, like, the widows in First, First Timothy 5. There was an office, if you will, a, a, an order of widows that when they were 60 years old or older, they were allowed to be supported by the church if their family couldn't. And so you paid them, if you will, but they had to serve. All right? So what about older women mentoring the younger women? I'm sure for an, a widow, that would be one of her chief responsibilities. We're giving you money. You need to work. Here's an awesome opportunity. I need you to disciple these younger women over here. Teach them what you learned, being a mom, being a wife and pass that on to them. So I'm not here to point fingers and to weigh. I am simply saying scripture says do not, that there is a role to be had. I personally, if I'm going to employ a woman in the church, I just wouldn't put that label of pastor and then have her preach from a pulpit or teach in a 
take a position of teaching in a class or in a group in which there are men present. And I don't think that is egotistical or, what, what am I looking for, uh, macho, help me out here. Chauvinistic. Uh, chauvinistic, that's the word I'm looking for. I don't believe that that's chauvinistic. Yes. All right? Then Paul was chauvinistic. And there are those in our day who even go so far as to say that Paul was chauvinistic. Wait a second. Now we're attacking the inspiration of Scripture and its infallibility and inerrancy. And that line is crossed and I have nothing to do with that. Now, uh, I am certainly not saying that everyone who ordains women as pastors believes what I just said. They, I'm, I'm sure many of them do not. Many of them do not view Paul as chauvinistic. But when I was in seminary, there were some women who felt called to become a pastor. And when me or some of the other guys asked them, why do you feel called to being a pastor? Don't you see first, in First Timothy 2, Paul saying don't. And they, some of them said, well, I just believe Paul was caught up in the cultural uh, culture of his day and that he was being chauvinistic, as, as all men were back then. Wow, that undermines the inspiration of Scripture. Let's toss out everything Paul said then. Where do we decide what is right and wrong? You can't. You accept all of it or none of it. Let's not be the ones to choose what's from God's heart and what's not. All of this, people, all of this is from God's heart. Now, if you don't understand it, and I'm going to be the first to raise my hand, I, I am married to a woman who is probably smarter than me, um, can think in many ways clearer than me, um, her perspective on things amazes me at times because she can see the big picture and she can see down the road many times better than I can. But I will have to also admit this, and I don't think it's proud, but I balance her as well. Okay? And we balance each other. But when it comes to pastoring, God has said to my wife, through the scriptures, this is just not for you. And there are so many ways in which my wife can minister to, to women, and she, and she ministers to men, but not in, a, not in a, an office or a, uh, a role, but as, as opportunities come up. And in all honesty, it, it is never easy to discern, okay, where exactly is this line? Because there are many, many pastors who hold the position that I just shared with you. Many conservative, Bible-believing pastors that hold to this position. Um, and they will confess, when, where the rubber meets the road, it is not always easy to know exactly where you draw that line. Okay, Because Paul does not just follow it with a list of a hundred things that she can and can't do. He doesn't. He gives a principle. Okay? And so, let me just open the floor right now, because this is a controversial issue. I'm not just going to assume that we are all on the same page. Um, and, and even though, for the most part, we are, you may have concerns, you may have questions, and that's what I want us to work through. We have, we, we're limited in time, but uh, any questions or comments at this point on this topic? Mary? Um. When Meredith in the role as a praise and worship in charge of praise mm-hmm. and worship, okay, mm-hmm. when she stands up and, and you know and encourages or says anything, you know, like she normally does, which is always awesome. 
Um, is that, that's not her being any type of a pastor, because I've heard that being said in the past sometimes mm -hmm. by other people. That's her still under your authority, is it not? Right. Okay. But we also need to understand that many churches that have women pastors preaching from the pulpit, they say, well, this is my wife and she's under my authority. I am allowing her to preach from the pulpit. I would not have Meredith do that. Um, and, and this is something that Meredith and I dialogue about regularly. Because where exactly do you draw this line? Um, does that mean that she could never speak to a man, um, even a young man, or, or even a, a man herself? And if he did something wrong, to say, hey, Scripture does say that you should not do this. What if she says it to defend another lady in the church? Does she have to run and find me and say, you need to challenge us? Well, I didn't even see what happened. I'm going to take your word for it, but I'm kind of at a loss here. And I would encourage my if you saw it, I want you to feel free to address it. And so her desire would be to address it humbly and speak, especially if the man is older than her with regard to his age to, to treat, and treat him as a father. But you, you want to do this um, she, she would want to do it respectfully. From when she is up there and encouraging people from from the body, um, if we were to draw the line and say, "Well, really, she shouldn't do that," then we would have to say she shouldn't prophesy, because that is part of what prophecy is. Isn't it? Is comforting, encouraging, exhorting, and she would not be able to do that. What what she does not try to do is scripture says that scripture reads this way and here's what you need to do now has she ever done that yes she has and she's come to me and she said you know what i felt a little bit uncomfortable maybe i shouldn't have and it's just her and i now dialoguing well then how do you where do we draw this line and so and I, she will be the first to tell you that is very difficult where does prophesying because you read a passage of scripture and then you encourage people, and, but you're bringing them together. At what point does that become teaching? So her role is not a teacher, but as an encourager in praise and worship. Okay, that's now many worship leaders will take five minutes or more during a worship time, and they will teach about worship. We just don't have Meredith do that. Okay, so that that's how I would respond to that. Um, it's not an easy place, and if we're in error, we just say, God, then show us, um, because we want all things to be done decently and in order here. But I'm afraid that if we say, Meredith, don't, don't encourage people from, from up front, um, and don't read scripture from up front, the, are, are, are we saying don't operate in that spiritual gift of prophecy when Paul says they should? Okay, good question. Yes, Zach. I, I guess I'm still a little confused on that. So, <clears throat> so she's on the stage and she says something we talked about earlier, like if a woman was to be in a discussion with with a group of people, she's sharing her opinion, that's technically that technically could be considered teaching. Uh, I think I said that wasn't. Well, I thought you were saying it was teaching, she was but it wasn't in the teaching authority together. Right, so right now I'm talking about teaching and authority group. separately. So teaching... Okay. You, made, you made it seem like teaching, if, if they're independent, teaching, like if she was to share in a group of people, that could be considered teaching in okay. that sense, but it's okay because there's not the authority. Right, yes, okay. 
So if, if there's a group discussion, then if we're going to say women can't teach in the presence of men, they can't share insight from Scripture and what God has shown them, I mean, how different is that than teaching? Then if there are men present, she shouldn't do that. If we're, teach, if we're separating teaching from having authority. So they shouldn't ever teach. Okay, now we've dealt with that. Then they also shouldn't ever have authority. And I'm saying it's together. Because otherwise, practically speaking, then they're not going to be able to share in Bible studies. Okay, so I guess many, what I'm saying is like, yeah. okay, by that logic, it's cool for Meredith to be on the stage and share stuff because she's, she's sharing things. But like, I think what complicates it, though, is she does have a certain level of authority because she's the worship leader. Right. right. And that's my question. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's where I'm getting confused because she does have, you said it's okay for them to teach in that sense without the authority, but now we have coupled authority with it, or, or else we need to say that the worship leader has no authority. But the worship leader's role is not a teaching role. Okay. Okay. A pastor's role, he is a teacher. Okay. Uh, for some deacons, at least in our church with life group leaders, um, the, the men are the ones who lead the, the Bible studies. Um, though you technically might be able to lead a study in which you're just asking questions and there's no... Um, teaching, okay, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to, like, super split hairs. As a woman brought that to me, I just said, you know what? I, I feel that if we do that, we're going to open the door, then a woman can lead the Bible studies. And now that's really easy, because I've done that so many times. It's really easy to shift from just asking questions to now teaching. And, and we're going to open the door. So let's, let's not open that door, Okay. I'm not saying that a woman can never lead a, a Bible study by just asking questions. It's just that most of the time there is going to be teaching in there, okay? Because that is a position of authority that, in which you're expected to teach and not just ask questions. I think Do you understand what I'm saying? I think we may need to define teaching differently then if, if, if we go that route because the worship leader's job is to share encouragements from Scripture. It is to an extent to prophesy in a sense because the idea is that you're up there and the spirit's going to lead you in worship and part of worship is is those components so i feel like her authority or her role is to share words of encouragement share prophecies and then at, at that point I, I feel like we either need to redefine teaching so it does not include those things or or else the worship leader can't be a woman Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's just wrong. Okay. And and those are certainly things that Meredith and I have discussed. And as far as what I have read with godly men who who are akin with my view on this passage, um, and some of them don't allow a woman to be a worship leader. I would venture to say though that the majority of them do. Um, and they share their reasons why, and it would be similar to the ones that I'm sharing right now. Because they do not view a worship leader as a teaching position. Though there, there's going to be encouragement. Um, anyways. Yes? I just was going to share this really quick. I think like as we're trying to dissect like teaching and prophecy and stuff, one thing to remember is that Miriam did lead people in worship, and she prophesied. And that prophecy was canonized. Mm-hmm. Like, and so then Paul is saying, don't allow a woman to teach, just like the law says. 
So I would think that Paul is seeing a difference between a woman prophesying in worship like Miriam. and teaching okay. because Miriam was in the law. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And there is, to a large degree, that uh, that psalm or, or that song that she sang has some teaching points to it, but her role was not a teacher. And for this reason, the, the many men that I have read see these together, not separately, teaching and having authority. Um, and every church is going to have to dissect this and say, how does this, how does this fall out? How does this work itself out practically in our church? Okay. I seriously doubt that there is a church out there who does it exactly right. And so, because what we have here are principles that we are guiding ourselves by. We're trying not to rationalize, but we are truly trying to understand that if the woman's not supposed to do this, then why are they allowed to do this? Because they're so similar. So, definitely a need for more dialogue on this. But I would, I would suggest that he is talking about a teaching role. And that's why many of them hold that he's just referring to women not being elders, overseers, or pastors. I think it's a little bit broader than that. Because sometimes, like for our church, deacons, life group leaders, do have that uh, responsibility in a life group. So, did you, one, one more? And I'm going to move on. I may have misheard the phrasing earlier. But did you suggest that um, if a pastor falls into adultery, Oh, I would definitely say it's not as severe as a, as a pattern. However, um, if a man falls into adultery, um, the church is going to weigh it differently, but he should probably step down. Yeah. Because there's a trust factor for this leader now that has been broken. All right? But on the other hand, I'm not saying that if a pastor has ever lusted, he should step down either. So that then well segues into this next issue of church discipline. Okay. Um, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I would like to be able to spend more time digging into this particular uh, issue. Um and if I find that there are a lot of questions afterwards, I, I may choose to, uh, to teach on it, maybe from the pulpit at some point. Um, but I, I do realize that my time has gotten away from me, and I'm not going to give this the fair shake that I wanted to. Church discipline is a difficult issue in our day because there is such a strong focus on love and acceptance that there also tends to be a permissiveness. I am all about loving my children, but that does not mean I won't discipline them. I will. As a matter of fact, the more I love them, the more I will feel it necessary to discipline them and not let them get away with it and build these certain patterns of rebellion or backtalking or stealing or hitting somebody when they get angry. I'm going to want to, because I love them, I'm going to want to discipline them all the more because can I just tell you that as a parent, disciplining is really inconvenient. I don't like it. I've never liked it. 
But I realize that Scripture commands it, and I have seen the fruit of it. I've seen the fruit of it in my children. Personally, I think I, I have the most wonderful children in the world. And, and maybe I'm a little biased on that, but I am just so amazed with my five children. Um, man, I love them uh, to death. So, for, yeah, thanks. One day I will. But let me say this, that if our country is overrun and they're wanting to apprehend my family, I would, I would not have to think about it. But in a New York second, I would step in front of the bullet, the bomb, the grenade, the whatever, to protect my family. Wouldn't have to think about it. All right? I would be willing to lay my family down. I would not say, well, I've got three seconds to decide. Should I jump on this grenade or should I let it kill Jimmy? (laughs) 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 Weighing it. Boom. Time's up. You lost. Bad decision. You hesitated. Um, So because I love my children so much, I will be willing to inconvenience myself to discipline them. Can I suggest to you, I have yet to meet a pastor who has had to go through church discipline and enjoyed the process. Hated it, hated it, hated it. Loathed entirely. Because you're having to... It's never fun. It's never enjoyable to do that. There's, and there's, does God delight in the destruction of the wicked? No, he doesn't. But does he? Yes, he does. Does God want all men to come to a place of repentance and be saved? Absolutely. But are they? No, they won't. I believe that breaks God's heart. And so, discipline is a necessary part of life in the family. And since the family reflects the church, it must be a necessary part in the church. As a church, we have had to exercise discipline. Um, we, we've had to have leaders step down, but I'm talking about excommunication, disfellowship. Um, we've had to do that one time. And I was a young pastor, had other wiser men, um, extra locally, helping me walk through this. And, uh, and God gave us grace within the year the, the girl repented. Um, chose not to come back to our church. She had moved away to Atlanta, and when she came back to Florida, she moved back into Bradenton with her family, which is probably where she needed to be. She had a child. So, not an easy process to walk through, but biblically, it's here. The question then is, for what sins do you discipline? All right? So let's, let's look at this 1 Corinthians chapter 5 passage. Um, I did say that right. I didn't say Timothy, did I? 1 Corinthians chapter... Good. Okay. And it says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. Interesting way to word that, by the way. It doesn't say a man has his mom or his mother. It says a man has his father's wife, which has led many, and, and, and I'm kind of aboard on this, that it's, it's more than likely his stepmother, and therefore um, the sexual attraction is 
much more of a possibility. Uh, yeah, I don't understand the uh, Oedipus and the story. It's beyond me. I, I don't get that. Um, there is a natural aversion to that incest. Incest of any kind, there is a natural aversion to it. It's inbred in us. But for some, and, and I'm going to... I'm going to word it this way. There is such a demonic, not just fleshly, influence that this does happen. Um, And he says, so a man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Je- in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature or the flesh may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now I'm going to suggest to you that when he says, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord, it is possible that Paul understood this man to be a Christian. Okay? He called himself a Christian, and that's that's what opens the door to this. If someone's in your midst, and they don't claim to be a Christian, this doesn't apply to them. But if they call themselves a Christian, and and Paul here, it it seems that he even saw him as a Christian, because by doing this, you're going to spare him that he will not proceed down this pathway to apostasy. Apostasy is never attained by sin, excuse me, by sinful actions, but by a total denial of Jesus Christ. But sin, this type of lifestyle, is that pathway. So Book of Hebrews warns against this, as we've talked about. But some have suggested, well, by doing this, you're going to open the door for him to one day becoming a Christian. I, I don't see that point as clearly as seeing the, the, the more likelihood Paul did view this man more than likely as a Christian. I mean, Paul doesn't know. Okay, Paul doesn't know. Paul doesn't know the heart. There are weeds and there are weeds. And, and we don't know. It would suggest, though, that Paul viewed this man as a Christian. So... Christians can have addictions to the point where we would even wonder, are they really even saved? Okay? Uh, That gets into the whole idea of judging others that in Matthew 7, Paul, excuse me, Jesus warned against, but Jesus warned against hypocritical judgment. That's important in this context because he says just a few verses later, he says, you need to be able to identify the wolves in sheep's clothing. And how will you know this? By their fruit, their actions, their lifestyle. So we do need to be able to weigh people's lifestyles, especially those who are in a place of teaching. Okay? And so many times, though, even within the church, you hear this refrain, don't judge me, don't judge me. You know, that's judging, that's judging. You know, there, there is hypocritical judging. But we are called to weigh actions. Are we called to say, therefore, they're not a believer? I, I, I do it this way. I, I say, by their actions, it seems as if they are not a believer. I don't know for sure. And when I've had to approach people, and one person in particular, we were going to have to disfellowship because he was living with his girlfriend, 
He claimed to be a Christian, fresh out of prison. I approached him. He said, well, I don't want to not have sex with her because I feel obligated because she supported me in prison. And I'm laughing inside. Yeah, yeah, you feel obligated. <laughs> Sorry I, if I don't believe that. Um, but he, he did not, because the next step, would I, I said, yeah, don't try to just sleep on the couch and she's in the bed. I, I can tell where that's going to go. And I'm just going to suggest to you, just you either move out of the house, depending on whose it is, or have her, but just don't, don't cohabitate. You're opening the door, and, and the Bible says, avoid all appearance of evil, and you're going to hop in bed with her. Trust me, okay? You're going to do that. So, because you, you're not going to go from sleeping with her regularly to sleeping on the couch and having nothing to do with her sexually. Okay? Good luck on that. So I'm going to encourage you, 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 you need to put the foot down and, and you, you need to move out or she needs to move out. No, I, I, I can't do that. And so he stopped coming to, to Powerline. And I tried to reach out to him, but you know, he said, you know what? I, and I told him, I shared scripture with him, Galatians 5. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You need to weigh in your heart if you're really saved or not. I don't know. But before God, you need to be able to answer that question because you are living like someone who is not. And so that's how I, that's how I word it. I'm not going to say you're not even a believer unless it's really obvious because a wolf in sheep's clothing. At some point, someone has to say to this man, you're a wolf in sheep's clothing. Meaning, you're an unbeliever living a sinful lifestyle. You're a cloud without rain. Second Peter 2, Jude, talks about such people. And we're going to call you on the carpet. So I, I'm not going to say you never do that. There is a point in which Paul did it, Jude did it, Peter did it, in which, in Jesus, obviously, you call them out. This is such a sinful lifestyle. What you're teaching is biblically an error. And it's just that we, we do have to be careful and, and just say, you having sex with a girl? You're obviously not a Christian. Okay. We certainly want to live exemplary godly lives. For this particular man, he was doing something even the pagans didn't do. Paul says, you need to put him out of your beds. You need to disfellowship him. Now, he's kind of cutting to the chase. I think we need to assume there's been other stuff going on. And by stuff, I mean approaching the man. Matthew 18 says, when someone has sinned against you, proclaim it from the pulpit, right? No. Whoa, it doesn't? What does it say? <laughs> Do what? <laughs> Gossip about him. Between the two, no, yeah, go to them privately. Go to him privately? Yes. Exactly. You, you pull him aside. You go to him privately. If he doesn't see how he has sinned against you, bring another witness. Either someone who's seen it or someone who knows the scriptures, or both. Those are two, the two types of witnesses. Two or three witnesses. Something will be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. So grab someone else, one or two. So that this man can understand that what he's doing is truly sin. It's wrong and he's not repenting. That is the key. Not repenting. There is no repentance here on this man's part. And because there's no repentance, he is making this choice. I am going to live like an, an unbeliever or a non-Christian, but call myself a Christian. And I'm not going to repent of this. And so Paul says... Paul, I'm going to word it differently. Paul implies 
or understands that this type of confrontation has already taken place. Because if he doesn't listen to the two or three witnesses, then he says, bring the church. And if you don't listen to the church, then disfellowship them. So the church has already spoken to him. But apparently many in the church, what's the big deal? You know, what's wrong with this? Grace, grace is all, all sins are forgiven. You know, and um, how does he say later? Uh, everything is permissible for me. Okay. No, that's not what grace means. So anyways, I think, I think it's fair to say that these things have already taken place and so Paul passes judgment. And he says, you need to have this man, you need to disfellowship him. What is the purpose of disfellowship? That's my question to you, not a rhetorical one. What is the purpose of disfellowship? Make them hurt! (laughs) To protect everyone else in the group. Okay, protect people in the group. Give them an opportunity to think about what happened and the severity of it, so hopefully they repent. Okay, and could they not consider that without disfellowshipping them? No, sometimes they can't. Okay, all right. They can, but obviously he hasn't. So disfellowshipping, what happens in this process of disfellowshipping the people are not supposed to associate with him and that is a word that's used in in one of Paul's letters to shun them Um, so what then is it just to be mean to them and hurt them so there is what happens then inside of the one disfellowshipped that would make them consider this more seriously Feel loss. Okay. Convicted. Um, how would the disfellowshipping facilitate that conviction by the spirit? Well, well, I actually touched on this a while ago at a different study, but uh, it was in regards to the, the the visible church making the invisible kingdom of God manifest on it. So, like, when we disfellowship, when the church disfellowships. A brother, one who names himself a brother, professes Christ, but he's not living in accordance to his profession. Mm-hmm. What typically happens is the same judgment that would happen if this man remains in, in, in penitence. The same thing that will happen to him in heaven, cosmically, is what we're replicating on earth. So therefore, he gets completely disfellowshipped. There's a sense of grace that is laid upon him in the church that gets completely cut out. And he essentially feels a different type of conviction that clearly has not been brought in his repetitive ways in the church at his present way. So what happens is you essentially cut off the blessing of God in his life in a different way, not necessarily not happening to him. And I think we need to understand that there are tremendous blessings that are given to people in the body of Christ. They're, they're serving one another, loving one another. There is praying for one another. There is, um, well, there's 51 another, 50-some one another's um, with different verbs, praying for and serving and bearing one another's burdens that we find in the scriptures. And those are retracted. Not because we're just filled with anger. How dare you? Oh, we shun you. you know, there's no anger on our part. If anything, as a dad disciplining my children, man, my heart's breaking for them. 
Okay. Granted, there have been occasions in which, yes, I got upset, and but that's not. I'm not spanking them because I'm angry with them, and I just want, I want to put it to them. And that's not. That shouldn't be the reason why we disfellowship. We are turning their bodies over to Satan so that Satan can deal with their flesh. How does that happen? And I'm going to tell you this, that God does retract his blessing. What is it? Psalm uh, 66, in which he said, Lord, if I had cherished sin in my heart, you would not have heard me. This man's prayers are not being even heard. We see in Revelation 5, the bowl of incense rising before the Lord, representing the prayers of the saints. His prayers do not ascend. I don't understand the theological implications or theological theology behind all of that and how that works, but God's ears are deafened or are, are tuned out to this man's cries because he has cherished sin in his heart and he refuses to repent. God withdraws his favor upon him. And Satan has a heyday. Now I'm just going to speak from what I have seen. Satan does this because sin is addictive. And the more you get pulled into sin, the greater the just the, the natural consequences are. With with adultery, what's sorry if I get too graphic here? What's to keep him to moving to bestiality? What's to keep him from other forms of incest, sleeping with a neighbor's wife, and then the man finds out and kills him? Natural consequences. Okay, there are so or the man gets jealous and just beats him to a bloody pulp. These are the natural consequences. And I'm going to tell you right now, God will not step in, but will allow Satan in luring and sucking him into his sin to be devoured by his sin to deal with his flesh. Okay? And and I'm going to tell you what, Satan is an unmerciful taskmaster. So when you turn his body over to Satan, outside of the blessings of the Lord, Satan will take full advantage of this. And he will love it. But you see, Satan Satan doesn't know the end like God does. And as we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it would appear that Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about this very same person. And it says in verse 6, he says, The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. This punishment is not a whipping. It is the retracting of blessing, the retracting of fellowship and the like. That that is the, the punishment, okay? That's the discipline. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Rejoin fellowship with him because he has obviously repented. Welcome him back in. And in verse 11, he says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not aware of his schemes. So it's important that we, even though we may have forgiven any offenses he has against us, when he repents, and I would imagine he does so in the presence of the church, 
since the church disfellowshipped him, his repentance is public. You can almost imagine a scene in which the people in the church, especially the leaders, are embracing him, loving him, and welcoming, welcoming him back in. Because if that doesn't happen, now what God has done and allowed this evil in the man's life to bring him to repentance can now turn into bitterness. People now, with an opportunity to, even though they've forgiven in the heart, verbally express forgiveness, if they refuse to do that, there is this possibility of a hardness in their heart that could potentially remind them, yeah, he was, you know, this particular, even my child saw him and maybe my child is starting to delve into this junk because of him. Man, that would be very offensive to it. But you verbally communicate, I forgive you. I forgive you. And you welcome him back. Okay? For a number of reasons, the enemy can get in there and seek to spoil what God has meant for this man's repentance and for his good. Okay. Any questions? Steve? Sorry, I'm, I'm probably going to open up a can of worms here. Um, talking about discipline, especially within the church, how effective in this day and age is this fellowship? Because quite honestly, I mean, like, uh, just what I've seen with the homage, if you're, if you're shunned and you're disfellowshipped, you can't just go to another Amish group. Whereas in our community, we just mm-hmm. fellowship someone, they go to another church. Two yeah. weeks later, they're, they're plugged into another church and it's like, this never happened. Um, I can't speak from experience on that. But I have seen pastors write letters to other churches to communicate this. That is really tricky because you have to make sure you're coming across filled with love and not as Mr. Disciplinarian. Because um, that could work against you. People could read that and say, yeah, yeah, there was probably an argument in the church and he chose to get angry and send him out of the church. I bet you there's a lot more to this. And that's hard. I mean, there are overbearing pastors. Right? There are. Um, and so, if I were to get a letter like this, I would, I would probably call the pastor. Um, and if I didn't, should I meet this person, then I would red flag it. I would probably want to talk with them. And if their story is different than what I heard, if the pastor called me or sent a letter, I, I'd want to talk to the pastor and, hey, here, here's what I'm hearing. So, very difficult. Yeah, because there are churches almost in every corner, and you disfellowship, disfellowship them, and they just move on to another church. Very possible. So, Cole? Um, when I was a young Christian, fairly uh, young Christian, I was probably in my mid-twenties, uh, there was a couple in our church that had adopted three children. One was very favored, the other two were, were, well, they were basically treated very, very different. I remember many, many times that the mom and dad would sit by the ears, literally drag them out of, and even a teenager drag them out of the church. Just all kinds of stuff. I don't want to get into now. But basically... They, um, they they were taken from the family. These kids they were teenagers. They're taken from the family, and uh, uh, our church uh, disciplined by, by you know telling them they were disciplined and asked them to leave, and they did. They went to a different church. Um, they're probably close to that church anyway, but it was probably twenty miles, ten miles away or something at that point. But uh, 
It was very difficult to do, and they eventually came back. Uh, at the time, you know, before this, he was like a deacon, or I guess he was a deacon. Uh, it was very difficult. It was very, very difficult on everybody. Everybody really did like this couple, but everybody just cringed whenever you know they would discipline these kids. You know, they, 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 it was just it was just really awful. It really was. Um, so, you know, I, I guess that's the only time I've ever seen it done. It might it's probably happen other times, but. Um, and they asked me to help with that. The church did. I wasn't a deacon or, or an elder or anything, but they asked me to help with that. And uh, you know, I didn't know. I just went, kind of went to the Bible and kind of uh, talked about it. Um, and that's what they decided to do. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know all the ins and outs of that situation. Well, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, church discipline has as its goal to reflect the love of God. We need to understand that disfellowshipping is love. Should be. It's love. And the goal is the man's soul, to spare him on the day of judgment, to bring him to a place of repentance here on earth, that God would work in his life, and that Satan would so sufficiently deal with his flesh that he would hate his sin and realize what a miserable life this is. So I need to close in prayer right now. Let me do that. These are good questions. I'm sure there's, with these two very controversial topics in our generation, um, that that there's probably many more questions. And if there are, I certainly want to continue dialoguing with you about it. But uh, I do need to close in prayer right now. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Um, These are some hard topics, Lord. And where we may be stepping over the line in error, we certainly don't want to do that. Bring us back to proper focus in your scriptures, walking it out very practically. And I just ask you, Lord, that the result of of, of this and trying to be faithful to the truth of your, whether we fully understand it or not, that, Lord, that in being faithful to your word, we are going to see fruit of it, Lord. We're going to see strong, healthy disciples of Jesus, passionately following after you. We're going to see strong homes and a strong church with Jesus himself as the chief overseer. God, seal your word in our hearts. Help us to follow it in Christ's name. Amen.